Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best lives and advice on how you can achieve that too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our brand new studios in Willow Street, Pennsylvania. And uh, we have our um, super engineer today, Steve Wright. And uh, I like it when Steve is on the board because he's a fellow swimmer and he somehow boosts my energy level when he does this stuff. So uh, we're going to get a super performance. And his job is to make us sound good at the end. And uh, I want to remind everybody that the uh, purpose of our uh, broadcast is we talk to one of the luckiest people in the world each week. And the luckiest people in the world are those people who take control of their lives and, and take control of the direction and live their lives under their own terms. And, um, We call the show Changing the Rules. And, you know, throughout our lives, we're given all of these rules by everybody else. Uh, Our parents give us rules. The school gives us rules. The government gives us rules. You know, everybody is out there telling us what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And I think it was Steve Jobs, the uh, Apple guy, who came in and said, you know, when you're living your life under somebody else's rules, you're not living your life. You're living somebody else's. So we have a gentleman today who certainly is one of the luckiest people in the world. And you're going to find out that the luckiest people in the world are also the most interesting people in the world. And Ying Wu Shanley. And uh, what a great name. And you're going to get the history of his name, too, as part of the process over here. And uh, I met Ying in a swimming pool. He's a fellow competitive swimmer. He's a very, very good master swimmer. And we met him not too long ago when we were trying to qualify for next year's senior games. Uh, And I I found out that uh, Ying is recently retired as a full professor from Millersville College. Okay, and uh, he is embarking in the next third of his life and he's going to be doing some exciting things, but he's done some really exciting things in the past. And Ying has been an expert on the history of sports and his journey is an incredible one. And, And Ying, welcome to Changing the Rules. And let's start with your expertise. Is that all right with you? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, my expertise. I'm a trained uh, sport historian. Uh, most people have never heard of a historian as a uh, focus on sports, but there there are many out there. Um, um, well, let's start. Let me start with a couple specific questions. Okay. You know, uh, one of the things that we deal with all the time in sports are the Olympics, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And we had a conversation earlier, and we were talking. I was under the impression that the Olympics have changed, mm-hmm. that it, we went from being an amateur sport group over here into very much today professionals taking over the sports. And mm-hmm. I found out that's not true, is it? Uh, not in ancient time. The ancient games uh, where the athletes uh, were what we um, term as uh, true professionals because they uh, they do their best and they will uh, make a good living based on their athletic uh, prowess. Um, 
So the ancient Olympians were paid, in effect. Uh, paid big time, yeah. Like urns of olive oil. Um, they, they can have free meals and dine everywhere. Um, that's, that's pay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, they may not have get, get the currency also, but uh, their name recognition will enable them to live a very uh, wealthy life. And that kind of has gone on for almost like ever. I, when we started the modern Olympics, when did the modern Olympics start? Uh, the game, the first game actually took place in 1896, but uh, 1894, the International Olympic Committee was formed. Uh, at the time, there was the idea of uh, amateurs because it was supposedly based on the ancient idea of amateurs, even though in reality there wasn't such a thing. But it was based on a bunch of uh, social elite or, you know, um, who wanted to create this British upper-class idea of uh, um, amateurs, meaning you don't uh, play for money, you play for the love of um, sports. But the only way they could do that is because they were part of the wealthy elite and they That's had the right. money to be able yeah. to train and do whatever. Yeah. Who can afford to be a very good amateur athlete if you don't have money? Okay, so now we kind of understand where we've gone, right, yes. all of these years. And mm. today, yeah. uh, it's very much not the amateur that uh, rules the Olympics. No, because the amateurs won't be good enough to compete there. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, while we're on the subject of the Olympics, uh, I often wondered why would any city in their right mind want to sponsor the Olympics? I mean, do they make money doing these things? Well, uh, it's for recognition. Uh, politicians uh, would like to uh, bring attention to their corner of the world, uh, especially, say, if you're from... Brazil, from Australia, and how do you bring people to to your corner of the world? So you you using Olympic Games as a, a major attraction. Of course, uh, certain cities have benefited financially, but uh, um, many cities don't, and that is why today, because of the bidding is so expensive. Many cities decide they just quit because after all, if you have more than five or ten cities bid for, only one will be chosen. And the, the preparation will cost so much money, and eventually you're still not chosen, and you waste a lot of money. Even the chosen ones are still, not too many of them make a big profit. But on the other hand, uh, it's it's hard to measure because the legacy will be there. You have had the uh, honor to host uh, Olympic Games, that's something a lot of cities. And it's a national pride that comes Absolute, into play. Absolutely. Okay, so, so that, that gets me into the next question. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, I had the, uh, the ability to talk to you about some of these. So, mm -hmm. so I sound smarter knowing the right questions than I actually <laughs> am. But uh, let's talk about national anthems and sports and give us a little insight into the importance of national anthems. You know, we, we've all gone through this change in what's going on where mm -hmm. athletes now rebel against national anthems, mm -hmm. but, but there's a history here and a tradition. So why do we play national anthems? What goes on? What's the importance of all of these things? Well, it started as a Accidental event, I think, uh, during the 1918 uh, World Series of Baseball. And uh, after the seventh inning, you know, uh, 
stretch that uh, the band there played uh, some music, including the uh, Star Tangled Band. band. So, which uh, got uh, spectators excited. And uh, the manager or whoever the organizer figured out for the rest of the series, we're going to start playing the music to get the fans involved. And that was the beginning of that tradition. And uh, that tradition sometimes welcome, there's sometimes not, including many of the baseball franchise owners. They decided, you know, we're here to play sports. Why do we have to play music? You know, it makes sense if at the cha championship to play it, make it more formal and more, you know, um, respectful. But the, for every game to play this, it, it does not seem right. Well, uh, you know, the baseball history as well as the American sports history always go along with the time, and oftentimes we have uh, a nation in the war, and uh, patriotism plays very important role. When you are in the war, and uh, it's somehow we always need patriotism, and patriotism would be uh, something that the uh, uh, national anthem uh, will symbolize, uh, epitomize uh, our national unity. So that became a tradition, first in baseball, then in every other sports. But uh, for many, many decades, it wasn't that big a deal until, I think, more recently, uh, the Persian Gulf War, the desert storm operation in 1991, and uh, of course, the 9-11. Uh, 9-11 after 2001, that with artists like uh, Whitney Houston's rendition of the national anthem, you know, it became so popular at the time. It's it was ranked in the top twenty, and the second time was in the top ten uh, in the, um, the most popular charts. So it, it's very common, and uh, from from uh, outsider's point of view, it seemed to be very strange because. We can understand that they play national anthem at the Olympic Games when you play against Italy, against France, against Japan. So both team, both national anthem will be played. But here in this country, every sporting event, uh, even at high school level or even you know little league baseball, um, there's always national anthem. And uh, oftentimes the media like to portray it as. Uh, um, Every time we play sports, uh, we honor the people who protect our freedom because, um, you know, we have the the privilege to, to enjoy the freedom. We can play sports. Um, there among some of my students say that other countries don't have this freedom, which is uh, quite naive. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, yeah. I you know, you don't think about these things. And, and yeah. I guess this is the advantage of being able to study sports and being That's a right. sports historian. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to want to talk quite a bit about mm. this Title 19, because I know that you spent a lot of time writing mm. about that. But before we do that, mm. let's let's backtrack and let's talk a little bit about your journey here, mm. which I think is an extraordinary one. So you grew up not in the United States, mm. you grew up where? In China. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, the People's Republic of China, the mainland China. And, and there's another China called the Republic of China, but the Chinese government 
uh, mainland China does not recognize. That why is, that's why the big fuss about uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit to Taiwan recently. Okay. Because uh, the communists believe it's part of uh, mainland China, even though in reality it isn't. So, and you grew up, and uh, you grew up being raised by two women. Is that correct? That's so, right. Mainly because uh, my father was a, a high military officer, officially, in the in the nationalists or the going down. The you know you heard of Chiang Kai Shek. He was the head of the nationalists before 1949, when the Chinese communists. Um, took over China, the mainland. So the nationalists fled to Taiwan, which is where they still are until today. Uh, okay. And and so your father basically was put in jail because he was on the wrong side. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, more than 32 years altogether from 1952 to 80, 85. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and you were raised by two women, and, mm. and what was the effect that they had on your life? I mean, here you are, you're very much into sports, you're very much into things that you would think dad would do, mm. right? But Yeah, that's right, even though my dad was quite athletic, but my mother uh, was a much better athlete, I would say. She's an all-around athlete, and uh, um, in almost every sport she could put her uh, hands on, but she even flew glider in the late 30s and uh, early 40s. So at the time, Amelia Earhart was flying uh, around the world. Okay, mm-hmm. so you you grew up, you went to, you actually went to the college in Shanghai. Yeah. In originally. Shanghai, that's after the Cultural Revolution ended uh, from 1966 to 76 under Mao Zedong. And there's no college in China for 10 years, officially. Uh, uh, not the normal university. Uh, the university was running, but uh, and the students were not okay. academically selected. Yeah, but uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1977 revived higher education. So I, at the time, I was working on a state-run farm uh, in the outskirts of Shanghai. So I had the opportunity to took an entrance exam and... Um, became the first class, member of the first class of uh, university students. Um, I was playing soccer <laughs> before uh, I went to the farm, but uh, because of my family political background, I could not um, continue. Okay. So you, when you got your degree, or, yeah. or what did you major in in Shanghai? I majored in physical education at the Shanghai Normal University, and then I... Um, after graduation, I started teaching uh, as a physical education instructor at the Shanghai Foreign Language School, uh, quite, quite prestigious um, um, school in Shanghai, in China, today still is. And after six and a half years uh, teaching there, I, I came to the United States. All right. No, so what motivated you? You know, how did you get here? I mean... Yeah, mostly it was trying to escape the political persecution. Directly or indirectly, okay. because uh, my family's background and uh, my brother, older brother, was at the time a leader of the pro-democracy movement in China. 
Okay, well, so, we'll catch up with your brother in a minute. Okay, so so you you came here and uh, you went to the west coast of the United That's States. Right, I was uh, admitted by three institutions: um, Washington State University and uh, Chapel Hill in uh, North Carolina and Purdue. But the Washington State um, the admission came first. I grabbed it. <laughs> Right away. I don't care which school I'm going. I'm leaving China. That's most important for me. Okay. And and you were here. Now your mother, your aunt, your the rest of your family is still back in China at this That's point right. in time. Okay. That's right. Yeah. All right. So so here you are. You're on the West Coast and uh, you picked a major. And what did you choose to major in to get your master's degree? Master's in physical education and uh, the focus on uh, uh, sport administration at the time it was called. Yeah. Okay. And you were saying you had a friend there that caused you to then move to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Went so, to Penn State. Yeah. After the interview, I was uh, admitted as a graduate doctorate uh, candidate. And and you came here and you're now still in education and still in physical education to a large extent, but you're also majoring in yeah. sports history and some yeah, of the other it's things. called ex- it's the department is exercise and uh, sports sciences, but uh, my focus was a history of uh, sport and physical education. Yeah. Okay. So so now you are your 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 doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay, Doctor Wu. At the time, <laughs> were you married at the time? Uh, no. I, okay. Um, yeah, we were married in 93 uh, when I was still at Penn State. And, okay. Um, now, to show everybody what a Renaissance man you are here <laughs> and what an equal rights person you are here, let's talk about your name and, and talk about your bride and talk about what happened here. Um, my wife's uh, name was Geraldine Shanley. Uh, my name was Ying Wu uh, when we met and before we got married, or when we got married as well. But um, we became naturalized, became American citizen in 1999 and my wife in 2000. And uh, when we do the official document, you know, okay. paperwork, and uh, we had the the right to choose to decide our name so we chose on these name actually our first daughter um, was born with that name we decided so we created a new name Wu and Shanley Shanley is Irish and uh, from the county uh, Leitrim and uh, Wu is a more common Chinese name Okay, so yeah. you, how many Wu Shanleys are there now? There are four of them. Four of yeah, you, yeah, okay, yeah. in the whole world. That's right. Okay. Yeah, my wife and me and uh, our two daughters, yeah. Okay, well, this will explain to a large extent why you spent so much time talking about women's sports and Title IX and, and getting into all of that stuff because we have yeah. with us a true Renaissance man here, <laughs> ladies. I mean, you're going to want to know this guy. Yeah. But but uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, Title IX, mm-hmm. uh, what it did for women and what it didn't do for women. Okay. Well, Title IX, as we should know, uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX um, of the Educational Education Amendments of that Act in 1972. So it's the 50th anniversary now. Uh, what Title IX intended was to um, eliminate um, all kinds of the sex discriminations in educational activities where uh, the institution received federal financial aid. So, for example, Millersville University, 
not Millersville College anymore, yeah. uh, receives any form of financial aid from the federal government, uh, that law applies to Millersville. Uh, basically, most universities and colleges in the country uh, need to uh, be the, um, in compliance. And the intent of Title IX 72 was to change history in terms of opportunities uh, previously. And think about in your time or even older, not too many women get the opportunity to go to law schools, to engineering schools, to medical schools. But nowadays, if you look at it, it's almost half-half. That's the biggest intention. Now, most people think of Title IX as related to athletics or <laughs> deal with athletics. Uh, it probably wasn't even in the mind of the people who, who proposed for that law, but it became manifested in athletics because discrimination in terms of ability, you know, um, it, it's athletic sports is most uh, reflective in terms of how one is discriminated. Well, we have separate men's and women's sports teams or competitions for good reason because uh, physically or physiologically and there's a significant difference. You cannot compete together. If you put them together and then um, not too many women will make the men's team as at least as of now because the ability. Yeah. And uh, that's why Title IX affect college athletics the most. Uh, what did it do? It did a great thing to women's athletics because, for example, the University of Maryland, uh, before Title IX, the budget for athletics was like 99% goes to men's and 1% goes to women's, if that much. Today, the budget is probably is still not equal, but much closer. Yeah. Um, program, for example, at Millersville, we have probably 21 or two teams and... Uh, 12, 13, 14, uh, the women's team, for the reason of have equal or close to proportionally the, the ratio that uh, represent the student body, because at uh, Millersville, probably 53% uh, are women. Yeah. So um, the good things it did is increase the great opportunity for women to compete uh, in college uh, sports. What it did in terms of what perceived as the damage to women's control of intercollegiate athletics is because before Title IX, women had total control of their inter, uh, women's college sports. It's separate from the men's. Men's under NCAA, um, women's under another organization called the uh, AIAW Association for Women's Intercollegiate Athletics. And uh, now, after Title IX, the NCAA start to offer opportunities to both men and women because most institutions didn't want to have, uh, in, within Millersville, for example, have a separate department, athletic department for men, for women, have different rules. And the different rules is the problem. You can be sued for not treating your students equally. So after Title IX, most universities will merge their departments, men's and women's, into one. And you can guess easily. If those merge, who would be the athletic director most likely? 
Because right. men, because men used to have this, and just our society is still a male-dominated society even today. But uh, then women did not have control anymore because before Title IX, they had total control. They don't have to deal with men. They would not allow men to come in to coach or to be the director. Now Title IX says you cannot discriminate anyone. And the people often think, you cannot discriminate anyone. You cannot discriminate against women. You cannot discriminate against men either. But it's changed the the, the way sports laid out because today you yeah. see the big colleges and universities mm-hmm. dominating women's sports. Yeah, uh, I remember days back when we had a little school right outside of Philadelphia over mm-hmm. here that just absolutely dominated women's basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Maculata. The university, yeah, they won the first two national championships under AIW. So, so you get yeah. some good things and you lose some good things in well, the process. Well, uh, depending how you see it, um, the AIW want to have a combined organization have fifty fifty share of the power. The NCAA being it's so dominant in terms of its its tradition power and its financial resources uh, they wouldn't want to share you know it's not right but it's also kind of logical and you can understand a big company merge with a small company all of a sudden you said that these two companies have to share exactly the resources probably it won't happen Okay. All right. Unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our uh, conversation here, and mm-hmm. I want to get back to one more important thing in your mm-hmm. life. I, I, th- I think what you've been able to show us to mm-hmm. a large extent is here you are, you're in China, you're in a place that you want to get out to, you, uh, you came to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, we can almost say you escaped, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you built a life for yourself uh, that's exciting along yeah. things that were enjoyable to you and yeah. interesting. And, and uh, if, if Ying can do this, the rest of us can do this too. We just need to know where we want to go and what we want to do. But there's another element here that, that I want to make sure everybody knows about, and that's your brother. Hmm. Uh, so your brother stayed behind in China when you left. Yeah. And uh, what was he involved in and uh, what happened to him? Well, he was involved in the pro-democracy movement uh, in China, uh, started in the late 70s, and uh, he became a leader once he got involved. So he's devoted to for human rights and uh, democracy in China. Of course, it wasn't easy. Uh, but uh, he was detained, uh, put into um, prison labor for four years from 1980 to 84. And uh, I came to the States in 1988 um, at Washington State, then Penn State, and then I started teaching at Ithaca College. And, uh, you know, my mother died in 89, unfortunately. And uh, my father was living with a relative after he was released uh, for various um, circumstances. So my brother was the only one, actually, the only person I really know uh, and I'm concerned about his uh, well-being. So I said, you can continue your pro-democracy movement, but I feel much more comfortable if you can come to a country where you have more freedom to do it. And so I don't have to have nightmares every night. So he agreed to come. So in the summer of 1994, just about I was going to start the Ithaca College, he decided to come. 
I enrolled him at the English program for second language, uh, foreign language at Penn State, and uh, he hopped onto the plane, but uh, did not arrive in JFK, where the local media or the Chinese media was waiting for him because knowing he's coming. So he disappeared, and uh, for 11 days, we didn't know where he's about. He did not hop onto the uh, Korean airline where he was supposed to board. Um, 11 days later, the Chinese authority admitted they had him just for interrogation. Didn't want to let him go just because there are un some unsorted uh, issues. I started campaign um, in State College with my advisors, families, and uh, friends, friends, and it became an international campaign to rescue him. Eventually, the president of the United States at the time, Bill Clinton, and uh, uh, every senator is involved, hundreds of representatives involved in terms of uh, demanding writing letters. Uh, uh, media like the BBC, Reuters News, um, local New York Times, um, Philadelphia Inquirer. I remember all those uh, media interviewed us and uh, uh, reported. I made it big just because I know what happened in China for political prisoners. Uh, they can disappear and never find out where they went. I want to, the world to know so that he won't disappear. And that seemed to work, uh, to have worked. And I was told indirectly through my sister-in-law that uh, I should not continue this campaign because it wasn't good for the image of the uh, China. I said, oh, my... All I want to do is you release him, and I stop my campaign. And um, 50 days later, he, they sent him on to a United Flight Relief and telling him never go back to China again. Uh, he hasn't. And since. he lives now. He's he on the West in, Coast yeah. in the United States. Yeah, Oakland, yeah. And a happy ending. Yeah, he's okay. Still, <laughs> he still lived happily there. Well, he lived in Ithaca for a while, but after the first winter, he figured that's not what he liked because he had meetings in San Francisco. He, said he liked the weather there too, so he liked comfort as well. Even though he's a kind sure. of sure, yeah. Well, you know, thank you for being with us. You know, we're we're over our time limit, so we're going to have to end this. Mm -hmm. But um, Ying. Wu Stanley, or Wu Shanley, mm -hmm. and uh, Renaissance man, uh, one of the few people you'll, you'll ever meet that combine names with his wife, and a great history of, uh, you know, thanks for sharing the history of sport with us, and I can see why you get excited about it, and we'll continue to see you in the swimming pool, and uh, just, you know, thanks again for being here. You're obviously one of the luckiest people in the world, and thanks again. Thank so, you. Uh, Steve, sign us off, please. Thank you for listening to Changing the Rules. Join us next week for more conversation, our special guest, and to hear more from the luckiest guy in the world.